If you have your Bibles, I want you to meet me in James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Always the highlight of my week, my month, to be here with you all. I love this church. If you are new with us, uh, I just want to... Uh, this ain't a word from the Lord, but I wish it was. I think your search is over. Uh, I, I, this Something's happening here. And um, yes, there's dynamic leadership here. And I love my friend, my brother, Pastor Conway, and his wife, Jada, and their family. And God's using them in phenomenal ways. And Pastor Matt and his family, the other pastoral leadership here. But what God's doing here is more than just gifting you all with dynamic leadership. I mean, you walk into some churches and um, sometimes you wonder if God actually goes there. And I don't wonder that here. Something is happening here. And the Spirit of God is alive and He's working. And I, I give God praise. Give God praise for that. Uh, I was in a good mood yesterday um, until I stepped off the plane. You ever been in a really good mood in your air-conditioned house? Your time with the Lord was wonderful. Then you step outside and that heat just grabs you by the neck. I don't know how y'all do it. I really, like it's not normal what's happening here. You know that, right? It's not normal. Y'all are, well, I guess y'all used to suffering, your Cowboys fans. But anyways, uh, anyways, 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 anyways. On that note, let's pray. <laughs> Father, we thank you. We bless you for the gift of laughter. We thank you for this church. We thank you, Lord God, for all the lives being shaped and molded and changed here. We thank you for people who are coming to Christ because of the ministry of what you're pouring out here at this church. We thank you for couples, Lord God, whose marriages were strengthened at our recent couples conference. We thank you for the upcoming women's conference. We thank you about how your gospel is going forth through, through prisons, Lord God, and, and couples who hadn't seen each other are being strengthened, and people are being equipped, Lord God, and they're realizing that you're not, you're not the God of a second chance. We've used ours up a long time ago. You're the God of another chance and another chance. Your grace is sufficient. Now, God, I call on that grace. I feel today like, like that little boy with, um, with a few loaves of bread, few pieces of fish, and there's, there's a multitude who needs to be fed. And, and what I have to offer, Lord God, is not enough. But when you put your hands on it, it's more than enough. And so, Lord God, don't leave me hanging. Put your hands on it. Feed your people. So, Father God, we, we stand ready to receive. Would you just stretch out your hands and hold them up to heaven, just in a posture of receiving? Father, we, we are ready to receive your word. Say what you want to say. Meddle where you want to meddle. Encourage where you want to encourage. But don't leave us hanging. Change us, we pray. Make us more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. James writes, pick me up in verse 19 of James 1. James writes these words. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear 
slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. And I love this, receive with, make note of this word, we'll unpack it, meekness. The implanted word which is able to save your souls. But, verse 22, be doers of the word. And not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the, make note of these phrases, perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue. <laughs> so if you come into church blessing God with your mouth in service, but cussing folk out afterwards. James says this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. I, I want to talk to you about the shoes of Christianity. I want to want to talk to you about the shoes of Christianity. I got um, I got three three sons. They're um, they're hashtag adulting. Um, they're in that young adult phase. In fact, uh, right after the first service, my um, my oldest son uh, called me. He's he's in Missouri. Um, so proud of him. Just graduated from basic training and uh, had a chance to catch up with him. Um, and, and, and my sons are three young black men. And uh, one of the things my wife and I were very passionate about when we were raising them was uh, we wanted to give them a biblical worldview. We wanted to equip our sons in how to think Christianly. And, and some of the issues they need to think Christianly is how do you process things as a young black man of color who's a follower of Jesus? And so when they turned 12... Each of my boys, when they turned 12, I, I gave them a gift. I gave them a copy of the autobiography of Malcolm X. And I said to them, they're 12 years old. I said to them, yes, I want you to read all 400 plus pages. And when you are done reading, I want you to write me a five-page paper comparing and contrasting the ideology of Malcolm X with the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, to which they responded by giving me a big bear hug, kissing me on my cheek, and saying, thank you, Father, this is the best gift a boy could ever have. Said none of them ever. After some arm twisting, they, they, they read through the book, and uh, they wrote their little papers, and I can still see us now sitting at a local cafe and just trying to process this through the lens of the Word of God. I want them, how do we process Malcolm X through a Christian worldview? And, and each of them, each of them were shocked. They were shocked to discover that as they were reading the book, that here you have Malcolm X, one of the leaders of the Nation of Islam, they were shocked to discover that his primary recruiting ground was the church. 
Malcolm X would, would time it just right. He would stand right outside the church, right as the church was ending. It's, it's in the 1950s, and, and, and he'd catch all these church people as they're walking out of the church. They're flooding out of the street, and Malcolm would yell, y'all been in service for the past three hours. Look around you. Ain't nothing changed about the world in which you live. And then he would say these words, what difference has your Jesus made in your society and in your day-to-day life? What difference has your Jesus made in your society and your day-to-day life? Malcolm's question is a good one. Did Jesus Christ just save us for us to go to church an hour and 15 minutes or so once a week followed by lunch? Did Jesus Christ just save us so that we could have better quiet times? Did Jesus Christ just saved us and is now kind of serving as our executive administrative assistant who is helping us to pull off our best life now? What difference, practically, is Jesus making in our lives when the alarm clock goes off? This is exactly the question James is asking as he sits down and he writes his epistle. James is filled with what I would call, the book of James is filled with what I would call a lot of vitamin A application. James is an intensely practical book. James is not, watch it now, James is not so much concerned with how high you jump when you shout. He's concerned with how straight you walk once you come down. James is not obsessed with the head of the believer, and, and, and James is not even so much obsessed with the heart of the believer. He's focused on the feet of the believer. He, he, he wants to know how you walk this thing out. He, he, he wants to know, to, to quote my dead, my dead grandmother, he, he wants to know, does your faith have shoe leather to it? What are we doing if Christianity is just church attendance and quiet times? Are we walking this thing out? James raises three issues in our text today. This ain't no shouting sermon. I want you to fasten your seatbelts, come back next week. I don't even know who's preaching, but you'll probably shout next week. But, but, but James raises three issues in our text. Number one, James is interested in, how do I deal with people who offend me? Christians should deal with people who offend them differently than the world. Uh, Question number two James is interested in is, how do I respond to God's word when it exposes me? And thirdly, James is, is concerned with, how do I relate to people, orphans and widows, who can never repay me? First of all, how do I deal with people who offend me? Again, James says, know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Watch it now, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I love it. James is talking about an issue in in Christian community in which someone is angry. And I love it. 
James doesn't deal with the, idiot, the idiosyncrasies or the, or the specifics of what happened. He, he doesn't let us know that... Are you angry because somebody talked about you? Are you angry because someone abandoned you? Are you angry because someone cheated on you? He doesn't get into any of that. He just talks at a high level because in some sense, what actually happened is not the issue. The issue is the inevitability of anger within the context of, 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 of deep, authentic community. I've, I've said a lot there. Here's what James is saying by implication. You do real community with anybody, they're going to make you angry at some point. And you're going to make them angry at some point. I, I, I got a friend of mine, he says, it ain't a real relationship until you scream at each other. <laughs> now James would say, hold off on the screaming, but here's my concern. So much of what we, and it's especially pervasive in Christian circles. So much of what we Christians call community ain't community. We, we, we tend to be so surfacey with each other. We sit around in our small groups and there's a lot of wonderful small groups out there, but there's a lot of small groups where all you talk about is your kids' soccer games and, 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 and all you talk about is what's happening on your job and and I can't tell you how many people I've counseled who, who are going through a, diver, a divorce and yet they sat in a small group and no one knew they had marriage problems. But the reality of life is you really get to know me and I really get to know you. There's going to come a time and I won't mean to but I'm going to make you angry. And there's going to come a time, and you won't mean to, when you're going to make me angry. And if every time a person makes me angry, my response is to cut them off, then baby, I'm going to be lonely. So the issue is not the inevitability of anger. It's, it's what you do with your anger. So, Brian, is anger right or wrong? Is it good or bad? Yeah. I love it. If you read the Apostle Paul, Paul writing to the Colossians and Ephesians, he says several times, I want you to put off anger. But, but there's another time Paul writing to the Ephesians says this, Ephesians 4.26, I love it. He says, be angry, don't miss it, and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. I love it. When he says, be angry and do not sin, he is telling us there is a way to steward and express anger in such a way that, that, that it is not life-taking, but it is life-giving. And that's helpful because some of y'all grew up in homes where you watch your mama and daddy cussing and fussing and throwing stuff at each other and something in you at a young age looked at that and said, anger is wrong. And I'm not going to ever express anger. And so, and so you actually think or you thought for a while that your ability to suppress was somehow a good mature thing. 
And now some of us are emotionally constipated. You with me on this? The sign of health is not suppression, but it is godly expression. <laughs> sort of like, I was sitting with my boys one day. We, one of the things we loved to do when they were younger, and we loved to sit out in our little backyard. We had a nice little fire pit, nice little fire pit. And we'd love, there's something about my boys in a fire pit, and we'd be sitting by the fire pit, and they'd just open up and start telling me stuff and start talking. We, they would get kind of really vulnerable and personal. We, we used to call that time around the, around the fi um, um, fire pit, we, we used to call it um, 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 the locker room. And one time we were sitting around the fire pit and enjoying just kind of a relationship, and I said to them, you see that fire there? I want you to view it as anger. Right now, we're enjoying it. We're not afraid of it. We're, we're enjoying it. It's life-giving. Why are we enjoying it? Because it has boundaries and borders to it. But I said, if you take the borders away, the very thing we were enjoying one minute, we're now fleeing from and scared of the next minute. Same fire. Now it's just out of control. That's anger. Unfettered, boundaryless, no border to, pop off at the mouth, explode, is sinful. Jesus deals with this in the Sermon on the Mount. Look at it with, you, with me in Matthew 5. As he's kicking off the Sermon on the Mount, he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now we know he's talking about unrighteous anger. Why? Because analogously, he relates it to murder. When there's no control... Someone does something to you, and there's no thought to it. There's no prayer about it. You just pop off. Jesus says that's murder. Some of our kids are sitting in therapy right now because our anger, our unfettered anger killed their esteem, killed their confidence, killed their emotional well-being. Some of you, that's, you have that aggressive face of anger. You get me, I'm popping off right back at you. I got a friend of mine, man, true story. She, uh, she was driving down the freeway with the 405. She's trying to merge onto the 405 in Southern California. And uh, the car next to her wouldn't let her merge. Almost ran her off the road. She didn't let it go on the freeway. She pulls up next to the lady and just motions to her to roll her window down. Now, why in the 21st century that's still the sign for roll your window down? I have no idea. Why isn't it that? She, this woman, going down the freeway, rolls her window down, and our friend takes a fistful of change and chucks it at her. Didn't do nothing. I'm sure not, not a single coin hit, hit the girl. That's unfettered anger. It's what our three-year-old kids do. Don't get our way. Throw themselves out. My, my, my sons and I, when they, were, when they were little, we were in a store once, and 
we're watching this other kid. He looks about nine with his dad. He's wanting some cleats. And the dad's like, no, you can't have the cleats back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And finally they go to check out. And the kid says to his dad, dad, what about the cleats? And the dad says, I told you, you're not getting any cleats. We watch this nine-year-old, looks about nine-year-old kid, take his foot and kick his father in the hind parts. Now the look on my kid's face, they were about seven, five, and three. The look on the, they looked at me, the look on their face was, we can do that? And the look on my face was, I wish you would. There will be some smoke in the city. I wish. But my, here's my guess about you. Here's my guess. Most of y'all are way too cool to pop off like that. That's my guess. Most of y'all are what I call the okay crowd. Something happens to you, and you're like, okay. Okay. Husbands, if you ever do something crazy to your wife, and all she can get out is, okay. You might want to stay in a hotel that night. <laughs> the spirit of Al Green might visit your house. If you don't know what I just said, you can Google it after service. But seriously, though, some of us are what I call silent assassins. You get me? You got one time to get me. Ain't no two times. Grace is for Jesus. I'm not him. You got one time, and I'm, I'm out. I'm just going to emotionally moonwalk out of this relationship. All of a sudden, I've got too busy. Praise God for caller ID, because when I see your name, I'm not picking it up. And then when you corner me and ask me what's wrong, I'm going to come up with some excuse like I got too busy. I think Jesus would call that murder too. You just killed a relationship. And you never dealt with your anger. The sun has gone down on your anger, and you now have what I call a root of bitterness. And you thought you were hurting someone else when in the end it hurts you. Now you have trust issues. Now you keep people at bay, all because you made a decision. I'm not going to deal with my anger. Jesus says, you don't get the right to do that. You don't get the right to cut folk off who I died for. And the hypocrisy of it all is, if anyone has an excuse to cut someone off, Jesus says, I got the excuse. I should have cut you off a long time ago. But there's a righteous kind of anger. We see this with God. Theologians actually say that, that anger is one of the attributes or character traits of God. What? Some of you all, you're thrown by this because if you read passages like Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians 2 says this of us, that prior to coming to Christ, God was, 
was angry with us. He actually says, Paul says, that we were by nature objects of God's wrath. Some of you are like, no, wait a minute, I'm thrown off because I thought John 3, 16 says that God loved me. Now you're saying that God was angry with me. How can God be angry with me and love me at the same time? You must not have kids. Can't nobody tick you off like your kids. In fact, any therapist will tell you that if you really want to know what you love, it can oftentimes be seen in what angers you. That's why the worst thing God could ever do to you is not be angry with you. The worst thing he could ever do to you is to be indifferent to you. Romans chapter 1 says he turned them over. That there can come a point where God says, you know what, do you. That's the worst. We've been talking about this for years. I've been trying to just tell you not to do it. It's sort of like a little two-year-old kid who, who's not one to hold his dad's hand crossing a busy intersection. The worst thing that dad could do is to not grip his hand tighter. The worst thing he can do is, go ahead. You want an angry God. Because his anger says, I care. How, how does God deal with his anger? First John chapter 2 says he sent Jesus, and Jesus Christ became the propitiation for our sins. That's a big, deep theological term. It simply means the death of Jesus Christ satisfied the wrath of God. God says, I'm angry with you. I want a relationship with you, but I ain't going to ignore you or cut you off. I'm going to deal with my anger. Come here, Jesus. Die in their place and for their sins. You take my anger so that now we can have a healthy relationship. Aren't you glad for a God who dealt with his anger? And now to be a Christian means we deal with the anger. How do I deal with the anger? Well, a couple of things. Verse 19, he says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. You don't have to spend a day in seminary to figure out what's going on here. They're having a conversation. I'm hearing you. Slow to speak. I'm not avoiding anger. I'm, I'm slow to anger, which means when you anger me, I'm dealing with it. Let's have a conversation. I'm not going to cut you off. Let's just have the conversation. Let's get to the bottom of things. And then he says, be slow to anger, which is the idea of control. Did you know in NASCAR, this beautiful sport where these cars go incredibly fast, do you know that these cars, which go incredibly fast, don't go as fast as they can? They, they are outfitted, each of these cars are outfitted with something called a restrictor plate. A restrictor plate simply means out of concern for the driver's safety and the safety of the other cars, we're not going to allow you to go as fast as you could go. We're going to regulate your speed. We're going to restrict you. When you got saved, here's what happened. God put his restrictor plate inside of you called the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God's restrictor plate so that now you have love joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So someone triggers me, I'm angry, call a timeout. Invite the spirit in. You might want to sleep on it for a little bit. Have him give you the words. Exercise some control. Let the restrictor plate do his thing. But then he goes on to say, 
that I want you to also exercise meekness. Verse 21, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness. The idea of the word meekness is here is gentleness. Watch it now. You can have a, a murderer who has a knife and a doctor who has a scalpel. Both of these objects are sharp objects which can kill. What's the difference between the murderer and the doctor who both wield sharp objects? Gentleness. The murderer wields the sharp object to take life. The doctor wields his to give life. Anger is a sharp object. Hold it with gentleness. Then from here he goes on to say this. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and once again forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Here's what he wants you to see. And I got a fly here. He says this word, he calls it the law of liberty. God has given you his word so that you might experience freedom. But freedom is not the ability to do what you want to do. Instead, one pastor defines freedom this way. Will you look at it with me? That freedom is the ability to function at your highest or fullest God-ordained capacity. So many people have a mixed-up view of freedom. If freedom means you get to do what you want to do, try that in marriage. It ain't going to work. In fact, so many people try it. It's interesting, in all my years of counseling marriages, I've never met a happy adulterer. I've never met a person who was happy who spent money any way they wanted to. In order to thrive, you need restrictions. That's why the Bible, that's why James calls this word the perfect law, the law of liberty. Yes, it has rules and regulations, but the points of the rules and regulations is not the rules and regulations. They are, they are gifted to us so that we could lean into the fullness of what God has called us to. That's why the happiest marriages are those who die to themselves and live to others. Out of this, everything else flows. James says, because the word of God has been gifted to you and I for our freedom, I want you to be a doer of the word and not just a hearer. For a person to hear the word without doing the word is, is like chewing your food without swallowing it. It may taste good, but it has no long-term nutritional value. I want you to do it. And then he goes on to call this word a mirror. You know what a mirror is? A mirror is defined as something that reveals reality. That's why we don't argue with mirrors. We don't question mirrors. We don't fuss or fight with mirrors. We don't make mirrors adjust to us. We adjust to it. James says, I want you to look intently into the mirror of the word of God. Back then, mirrors were not as clear as they are now, which means if you wanted to get a real good look at yourself, you couldn't just kind of go past it real quickly. You had to stop and look intently. Some years ago, a little over 10 years ago, before I had glasses, 
my wife and I, our, our house at the time, like many of your homes in our, in, our, in our bathroom, we had this big mirror and there's two sinks, her sink, my sink. And, uh, you know, we do our thing in the morning and I'm looking in the mirror, I look real quick, keep it pushing. And she would get ticked. She says, I don't know how you do that. I said, what are you talking about? She goes, you don't see that big eyebrow hair? I said, yeah, I see it, but it ain't messing with me. It ain't bothering nobody. She goes, why don't you address that? I said, I, just, I don't feel the need to. Just keep it pushing. Not long after that, true story, I'm preaching at a church about this size in Southern California. Get done preaching a service. I'm out in the lobby, a line of people shaking their hands, and this one guy comes to me. I don't have glasses on, and he's not looking here. He's looking here. The whole time he's looking here. I'm like, this dude is weird. All of a sudden, with one fell swoop, he pulls out that long eyebrow hair. When I tell you I wanted to lay hands on this dude and not to pray, I wanted to take my fist and drive it through his nose. You talk about orge, unrighteous anger arising in me. Well, later on that day, I call my deeply sympathetic wife and recount to her what happened, and she is laughing like you will not believe. She says, I told you for so long, I don't know how you looked into the mirror, you didn't deal with it, and now you got consequences. You know all preaching is just holding up the mirror of the word. So here's all preaching is. Look. 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 Ever looked at yourself in the mirror and, and sometimes you go, I'm cute. <laughs> I think there's some Sundays you come to church and, man, we shout. It's good. But have you ever looked at yourself in the mirror sometimes and go, oh, boy. <laughs> We're going to be a minute. <laughs> if you always leave the sermon feeling good about yourself, Something's wrong. That doesn't mean we beat you up. But there should be some times when we look into the mirror and it's a hot mess. And you got to go, thank you, Spirit of God, for grace. Because I need you. We got a lot of work to do. It's looking raggedy right now. And the Spirit's like, I got you. Let's go home on this one. When we look into the mirror of God's word, James ends by saying, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit, actually in the Greek that, where that word is, to advocate for orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. I, I got to hurry. Five minutes. Did you know that in the Bible there are over, there are over 2,350 verses in the Bible that talks about God's heart for the orphan, the widow, the immigrant, and the poor? Over 2,350 verses. 
For example, in Proverbs, it says this. Look at it with me. In Proverbs, it says, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Think about that. When you bless a poor person who can never repay you, if I read Proverbs right, it's like you put God in your debt. God's like, I owe you. Matthew 25, Jesus' last sermon prior to the cross. He says, whatever you do for the least of these, you do it for me. That blows my mind. Jesus puts himself in the place of that homeless person holding a cardboard sign saying, we'll work for, it's like Jesus saying, you give to him, you give to me. I want to be careful here. Don't take this to mean you can't have nice things. First Timothy actually says God has created all things for our enjoyment. I don't think God created the crystal blue or crystal green waters of the Caribbean and says, Holy Spirit, I hope they never see this. No, get the bonus. Go on the cruise. Enjoy the vac- vacation. See Tabletop Mountain. Go to Rome. Experience it. But hear, hear me. If life for you is all about wonderful vacations and $5 cups of coffee and $400 pairs of jeans and $500 pairs of shoes and you do nothing for the poor, James says your religion is worthless. I I read these verses the other day, and it messed me up. Leviticus 19, look at it with me. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. He says, I want you to leave margins in the field for the poor to come and glean. This is God's welfare policy, and please notice, his welfare policy is different from America's welfare policy. In other words, don't just give the poor a handout. Give them the dignity of work. Now, here's the part I don't like. Look, vote any way you want to. Vote Republican, vote for Democrat. We we understand Jesus ain't coming back on the back of a donkey or an elephant. We get all that. But here's my concern with how so many Christians act when it comes to politics. We act as if... If I vote the right way, I can outsource my responsibility to the poor to government. God says in Leviticus, that passage I just read, I ain't talking about the White House. I'm talking about your house. A couple quick stories as we close. My... um, my dad, when I was like nine or ten, we were having family devotions. He says, pray for me. I'm going to this pro-life march. This is back in the 80s. Pray for me. I could get arrested. So I'm kind of freaking out as a kid, but I noticed a couple weeks later that my dad hadn't gone to the march, and I called my dad on it. Why didn't you go? He goes, ah, son, just got to thinking. I go to the march. Maybe I get arrested. What's changed? So he says, here's what we've done. In the middle of all that, we think God brought us an opportunity. He says, what do you mean? He goes, there's a woman who was able to get in contact with me who she's married, but she was separated from a husband. During her separation, she hooked up with this guy. She gets pregnant. Her husband then says, I'll take you back, but in order for you to come back, you have to abort the baby. My dad says, 
I told the woman, if you have the baby, we'll adopt the baby. That's my baby sister. She's 39 years old. Her name is Dr. Holly Gibson. She's an OBGYN who loves Jesus, is married to the head of surgery at their hospital. They go to church. They've got three young kids, my niece and nephews who love Jesus, all because my dad said, I'm not going to relegate my Christianity to an hour or so on Sunday morning. I got to put some shoes on my faith and live this thing out. So my wife and I really wrestle with this. I gave one of my siblings the other day, just since the, the Spirit of God just say, um, this one sibling's been going through a tough financial time. The Spirit of God just says, just send them a couple hundred bucks. Send it to them. Immediately they call me back crying. You have no idea I'm going through a tough financial time, and I literally just sent money off my last bit to pay the cell phone bill, had nothing left in the account. And what you sent me replaced exactly what I sent off. I want you to hear me. We used to sing a little, a little song in my little church on the south side of Atlanta growing up. You can't beat God giving no matter how hard you try. And here's what you need to understand. God's primary means of giving and blessing other people ain't manna directly from heaven, but it's manna that comes from heaven through your account to other people. At the end of the day, we are the arms. We are the hands. We are the feet of Jesus, which means God doesn't bless me just for me, but he gets a blessing to me that he might be a blessing through me. Where does all that come from? Unless you see yourself as poor. We're all poor. We have the worst poverty it is. We have moral and spiritual poverty. We had a debt racked up with God we could never repay. We were headed on a one-way course to hell, separated from him for eternity. And what did God do? God didn't say, well, you got yourself in that bind. I got mine. You get yours. No. God sent his son Jesus. And Paul says of Jesus, though he were rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. We are saved because of the generosity of Jesus. And until you see that, you'll never give. Plus, there's just joy in that. Our family, years ago, we were in Chicago. Just vacation on Michigan Avenue, Miracle Mile. We were shopping and we had our little bags. And I'll never forget, there's a woman sitting there. She's got a little cardboard sign. She's got three kids with her. Homeless, need food. And I walked right by her. And the Holy Spirit said to me, are you kidding me right now? Really? You got Ferragamo in your hand. 
You want joy? You want to know what joy is? Stopping at ATM, getting some money out, going to Trader Joe's, getting food, giving it to her, watching your middle son Miles lay hands on her, praying God's blessing, praying God's provision, praying God's encouragement. It's watching tears go down her face. I promise you, when you're flatlining, you will not think. Should have brought the brand new Range Rover with the 26-inch rims. <laughs> Ain't nothing wrong with Range Rovers. Ain't nothing wrong with 26-inch rims. Your biggest regret will not, be, will, will not be around what you didn't get, but what you didn't give. Hallelujah. So, Father, we bless you. I, I, I want this church, <laughs> I want the world to look at one community church and say, that's pure and undefiled religion right there. They don't just talk about it. They live this thing. They walk it out. So Spirit of God, living God, help us to live in that tension. Yes, we want to enjoy. Do the vacation. Do the, yes. But we want to give. So now, Father, having stared intently into your word, speak to us. Show us what you're calling us to do. For some of us, Lord God, maybe it's having the phone conversation with the person who angered us. For others of us, it's maybe the other way around. I know I angered someone, so I need to apologize to them. For, for others of us, maybe you're challenging us on greed. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray.